So Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through chapter 14, verse 4. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haheroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. It has been so precious to us during this this season, um, did not expect that this book, Lord, would be uh, so connected to all the things that we're going through, and yet, Lord, you have demonstrated your great wisdom um, for us as we have uh, allowed this book, this book to, to speak to our situation and to our circumstances. So today, Lord, would you, um, would you help us to be humble? Uh, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us and allow me as your messenger to simply be your faithful mouthpiece, to minister the truth of your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ to your people so that we can be strengthened, that we can believe, and that we can know that you are our great God and Savior. In your precious name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may... Uh, be seated if you were standing up. Uh, I want to just remind you of a few things this morning. I'm going to say some words here. Liberty, freedom, equity, justice, opportunity, responsibility, civility, community, peace, respect, loyalty, patriotism. These are some of the words that describe the heart and soul of the nation that we are privileged to live in, the United States of America. But it hasn't always been that way. And because we're a nation of immigrants whose parents and grandparents came to this country because they knew that if they could get here, they would find freedom, opportunity, 
prosperity, and respect. And friends, the cry of the history of the United States has been a cry of freedom. Freedom from the tyrannical rule of England, freedom from those who were enslaved on plantations in various places around the country, freedom for those who were in countries where there was no freedom, only persecution and suffering, longing to come to the United States of America because they knew that when they arrived, they would be living in a land of fresh opportunity. Ask yourselves the question, If the United States of America is such an awful place to live, why are so many people from so many countries around the world looking for ways to immigrate with their families to make this place their home? It is because they know that here, even though there may be issues, and we certainly have them, our country is by no means perfect, but they don't compare to what they experience in their countries. Here they can find freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and respect. So yes, we're a nation of immigrants pursuing freedom, seeking to live as equals together. We are one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. That's what we aspire to be. But friends, what if you don't have a country? What if all you know is bondage and slavery? What if the country you and your ancestors lived in was no longer home? What if you were being forced out as refugees, as pilgrims, without a home? What if you left quickly with little food into a wilderness you've never been to before, but with the promise of a better life? What would you be thinking? What would you be longing for? What would you plan, or how would you plan your day? Where would you be headed? We long for freedom, but sometimes we don't think beyond that freedom. In our text today, we find the Israelite people having left the land of Goshen and traveled through Ramses to Succoth, faced with some of the same questions. They are free, but now what? Having been set free from bondage, how do they press on in their freedom? And that is the question we want to ask ourselves this morning. That is the question that this text text is asking of us today. Having been set free from bondage, how do we press on as children of God? How do we press on now that we are free? We've been set free, but now what do we do? And the text before us today will give us four guiding truths to help us on our journey from bondage into newfound freedom. It really is an exciting text that speaks of a number of things. Various roads, bones, clouds, fire, and finally a trap. This language, friends, of bondage and freedom and journey is all a metaphor that is used in the New Testament to describe the Christian conversion. We are enslaved or in bondage to our sin. That's Israel in Egypt. There is liberty from that bondage through the blood of the Lamb. That's the Exodus, or the Passover, I should say. Then there's this moving on in newness of life. That's the journey 
of crossing over the Red Sea, and they're on their journey right now. And friends, the classic text that the Apostle Paul gives us is Romans 6. In Romans 6 and verse 20, Paul tells us that we were slaves of sin. In other words, we were enslaved to sin. And then Romans chapter 6 and verse 22 and 23, it says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So friends, even for us today, as Christians, we're asking ourselves, okay, now that we're free, what's next? How do we move on? How do we press on? That's the question of this text. How do we press on now that we're free? How does Israel press on now that they have been liberated? But first of all, I want you to know that we press on resting in God's providence. Let's read verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although uh, that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And we see in our text here that there are two roads that could be taken. There's the road that took them by way of land uh, to where the Philistines were. That was the shortest route. Then there's the road that took them by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. That was the longer kind of roundabout route. But which is the best road? Which road is the right road for Israel and why? Who can determine these things? Of course, in reading this, I'm reminded of the well-known poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, uh, no step had trodden uh, back. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I should be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that was all the difference. Here we have Israel with two roads. We realize, friends, as we look at the options before them, what appears to be the best road to take, the most logical road, isn't always the right road, or the safest road. The shortest distance between two points isn't always the right path that God is choosing for His people. When you're looking to go on a journey, if you're like me and you have a smartphone, you get typically on something like Google Maps or Apple Maps or Waze, and you punch in the address, and usually what happens 
is that a map shows up and there often, if not usually, are three options that you're given. One is the most direct and shortest route to where you need to go. That's usually the one you take. Then they give you option two. Option two is close to it. It's usually maybe just going a little bit out of the way, maybe taking another path, and it's maybe, maybe five or 10 minutes difference in, in length. That's option two. Then there's option three. Now option three can be really unusual. Option three sometimes can take you way, way out of your way, as if you're kind of going into another state to finally get to your destination. Now, I have to ask yourself the question, don't you? Why do they even bother giving you option three? I mean, who would want to take option three to get to their destination? We want the shortest, fastest route that's free from construction, free from accidents, free from traffic. But here, friends, here the Israelites are using a different app called Yahweh Maps. And God isn't so interested in the shortest distance between two points or simply the route that is going to keep you safe. No, with Yahweh Maps, you have an app that takes into consideration much more. What does our text say? And I want you to notice what it says. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. There was a war going on a war between Egypt and the Philistines. If you remember, part of what Egypt did by using the Israelites as slaves was to build up these cities on the frontier, in particular in their battle with the Philistines. And so he, he's concerned that if they were to go that way and they saw war taking place, they would say, we don't want any part of this, and they would turn back and go to Egypt no matter what, fleeing in discouragement for their lives. You see, now God's path of choice was based on His understanding of His people and His own purposes. He's concerned about their discouragement. So rather than choose the shortest path from A to B, God takes them on another path for their own good and for His own purposes. This is God's wisdom. This is God's providence. I heard this week the story about two British pastors who were traveling to Albania to serve the church in ministry as well to provide much needed medical supplies. They were bringing boxes of medical supplies, food, clothing, a couple of vehicles for some local clinics. This was like a humanitarian effort to help the local town and village clinics provide the needs for their people. But they're also bringing just a, a bunch of boxes of books from a, a Christian publisher for the pastors and Christian workers that they would be ministering to once they got to Albania and settled down with, uh, with the churches there. When they arrived in Albania, the Minister of Health of Albania met them and escorted them to the town and villages where they were able to unload their supplies at the various clinics. And then they went off to stay with their Christian friends. After a few days of ministry, they felt they were ready to, to get the boxes of books out and to distribute them to their Christian friends and the pastors that were there. But when they went to the boxes, alas, there were no books. The boxes of books had been unloaded at the various clinics, 
and you know, mistakenly, rather than actually some of the medical supplies. So no books now for the believers. Well, a few days later, these two pastors were being shown around by the same minister of health. Along with that minister of health was a leading lady doctor, and they went throughout the country on this tour of the very needy hospitals that were out there. And as they finished the tour, one of the men had an opportunity to speak to the lady doctor about Christ. And when he began to talk about Christ, her eyes brightened up. And she said, oh yes, I've just been reading about the authority of Jesus Christ and about the authority of the scriptures and about the authority of the Holy Spirit and come to find out the books that had been mistakenly unloaded were being eagerly absorbed by the medical staff. So God must have decided that though the believers in Albania needed the literature, that the medical staff in Albania who had never heard the grace of God needed them more. And God led them round by a different route, see? He went, the, the, he went a, a, not a direct way, he went kind of a, a roundabout way. Friends, God's ways are not always our ways. God's path isn't always a straight line, is it? God often takes his children by the way of the wilderness for his purpose and for their good. And I'm reminded of a verse of scripture that we often quote, in particular in the context of counseling or helping someone through a trial, and it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And this is what it says. No temptation has overtaken you. The idea of temptation, there is trial, okay? No trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tested beyond your ability, but will with the temptation or the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. And we read that and we love this verse because in this verse, God promises a way of escape. Woohoo! We love ways of escape. And in our minds, we, we envision ourselves in a trial and figuratively speaking, God coming along with a helicopter and dropping a ladder down and picking us up out of our trial and kind of carrying us away. But that is not the right picture. In fact, that's a wrong picture. This way of escape, if you notice here, is a way that you must be able to do what? Endure. Endurance implies difficulty. And friends, God's way of escape isn't usually, if ever, a straight line, but one that meanders here and there through terrain that you and I must be able to endure. That may not set well with us. We want relief, and we want it now. But God says, I have a way, not so much of escape. The idea isn't to kind of escape in our thinking. It's more of a, a way out, a path out. And that path out usually isn't a straight line. It goes all over, up and down and around. And this is the way it is with God. Now, in this case, the road through the land of the Philistines would be dangerous and discouraging for the people of Israel. Yes, we're told they left in battle formation, equipped for battle, but they were by no means ready for battle. And God knew that. And in his providential wisdom, he takes them by way of the wilderness. 
This is not the direction that Google Maps would suggest. And certainly if you took that alternate path through the wilderness, the destination time listed in Google Maps would not read 40 years. But God in His providence chose the wilderness path for the good of His people. And friends, God is still guiding His people by His providence. And we must trust that He knows what is best. Now friends, hear this. Just because you are now free because of Christ doesn't mean that you are free from struggle. You will continue to struggle with issues from your past. You will certainly struggle with new issues in your future. And you are struggling right now with temptations and trials and difficulties that you have to face today. Freedom comes with new opportunities, new obstacles, new responsibilities, and new struggles. Now hear this because our our culture is saying something different here. Freedom in this life does not equal utopia. There's a longing for utopia. This is what politics will promise you. You know, make America great again. What does great mean? What does it look like? We want to build a society where everyone can be equal. What does that actually look like? Is that reality? All these utopian ideas out there. God says, in this life, you will have tribulation. There will still be struggling. Why? Because you struggle with your own sin. And if you're struggling with your own sin, then everyone's struggling with their own sin. Sin is present. And the idea of utopia is a place where trouble and struggle and obstacles or responsibilities are gone and where peace and personal comfort and pleasure are central. Friends, that's heaven. That's not here. So don't miss that. Don't be swept up with this pursuit of a utopian society. The reality is there will always be a need for struggle to do what is best and to get as close as you can to what that looks like. But boy, even when when countries have raised up thinking they have the utopian answer, there has been suffering and death and murder and people who take advantage and people who rise up to leadership and oppress. It's all there. (laughs) Um, The utopia we're longing for is the utopia of Jesus Christ seated on His throne, ruling and reigning His new creation. We long and we look for that. So until the Lord comes, there'll always be work that needs to be done. There'll always be a need for progress. But we press on, resting in God's providence. So we rest in God's providence. Secondly, we trust in God's promises. Here they are. Here are the the people of Israel, and they are moving on out. And notice what we read in verse 18. Verse 19, I should say. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear. What does that sound like? A promise saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. What is going on here? Is Moses being sadistic, morbid, or even 
sentimental? The answer is no. And we're going to need to go back to Genesis 50, verses 20 to 26, to understand what is going on. But before we turn there, we need to go back even further. And we need to go back to Genesis 15 and verses 18 through 21. This is the Abrahamic covenant, at least part of it. And here's what we read in chapter 15 and verse 18 of Genesis. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. There's a land that God promised Abraham, and that same promise, that same covenant is, is reiterated to Isaac and then to Jacob. Now remember, Jacob is the father of Joseph. And certainly, Jacob would have communicated this promise from God, this covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to his son, Joseph, so that when Joseph now is dying in chapter 50 of, uh, of Genesis, verse 24 through 26, this is what we read. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you should carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Hear this, friends. Joseph was in Egypt. He was over Egypt but he was never of Egypt. He was still longing for what God had promised, that land, to be taken into that promised land. And so he made his brothers promise that when God brought his family into the land of promise, that he would be buried there because he saw that future promise realized in a land that was the land of his people. Now friends, Joseph was, as it were, wrapped up in the promises of God. And friends, it's good for us to be wrapped up in the promises of God. Now, qualify here. We need to make sure that the promises that we're wrapped up in are actually promises given to us. And sometimes if you just open a Bible and read a verse, oh, it's a promise for me. It may not be a promise for you. We need to be careful how we interpret Scripture and understand Scripture. It may be a promise unique to Israel. So we need to make sure that the promises that are for us or what Scripture says or clearly shows us are for us. Now, you may know the character Corey Ten Boom. Years ago, um, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, just about her experience during the Second World War. And one of the things that comes up in this book is how she learned basically about one passage of scripture that helped her through this season of difficulty. Corey's father was a watchmaker, but people were not buying watches and there was a, a large bill that was coming due. And she and her father sat at the table with their meager dinner and Corey was concerned about how they were gonna pay off this bill. And so she asked her father, Father, what are we going to do? How are we going to pay this bill? 
And her father looked over to her and said this. He quoted scripture, Deuteronomy 33, 27. He said, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Later when Corey is in a concentration camp and her sister is in despair saying, what shall we do? The verse of scripture that came into her mind was Deuteronomy 33, 37 or 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Friends, sometimes in our times of struggle and despair, it is the promise of God and his character that is all we have. Now let me show you the importance of the promises of God from the New Testament. I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And it's a passage you know very well, but we want to kind of flesh it out a little bit more and see how this connects with what's happening here in the book of Exodus. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the question I have for you this morning is to ask ourselves this. Where did God say, I will never leave you or forsake you? Where does that come from? And I would like for for us just to kind of walk through the Old Testament and end up back in the New Testament and think about this wonderful promise that God gives about his presence. We go to Genesis chapter 28 and verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's God's promise to Jacob. Then God, or Moses makes a promise to Joshua. And this is the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Again in verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then we continue on, and this is God's promise to Joshua now as Joshua takes up the reins. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Then we have the promise that strengthened Samuel and Israel. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. He will not forsake you. And then David, as he's speaking to his son Solomon, he says the following. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. You see how these themes are present there in the Old Testament. Then Nehemiah, as he's recounting the history of Israel, as he's he's thinking through what God has done 
he says to the people to encourage them and to establish God's covenant faithfulness to them, he says this, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, talking about God. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then when Jesus is speaking with his disciples right before his departure, he says this, we know this passage so very well, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and to reinforce what he's saying with, with presence and power and comfort. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that takes us then back to this passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let's read it with a little bit more care, shall we? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Has he said it? Has this been a repeated theme that God has already said throughout the history of Israel? The answer is absolutely yes. And notice though, in verse six, so, this is what God has said. So, we can confidently say, God has said, Here's the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. So, because of what he has said, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see what's going on here? In verse 5, we have the foundation of what takes place in verse 6. Or to put it in one sentence, God's promise is the foundation of, of our belief and behavior. See friends, what the writer of Hebrews is doing for his congregation as he's preaching the sermon is to reach back with the Old Testament language to encourage the body of Christ. He's encouraging them to lean on God's promises and to press on because of God's promise. Here's Israel coming out of Egypt, but they're coming out holding on to a promise that has been carried down through the generations with the bones of Joseph seeking that land, that land that God had promised them. And friends, that is true for us too. When we move on, when we press on, having been liberated from bondage, God wants us to continue on by trusting in His promises. Now, I realize that kind of statement can be like, oh, we hear that all the time. But we want to be careful that we don't negate it because those promises are there for a reason, to give us this foundation of truth that we need to believe and to live. So, we rest in the providence of God. We're comforted by the promises of God. Now we press on by God's presence. Verses 20 through 22. Let's read this. 
And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, uh, of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So here we have the invisible God giving a visible sign for His people. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Friends, the the cloud and fire was radically new to Israel. This was a totally new kind of experience for them. The people had known the promise of God's Word passed down through the generations. They knew God's promises, but they, as we're we're told in the story, had felt abandoned by God. That's why they were crying out for rescue and wondering whether He was listening. Where was God during their bitter slavery under the heavy hand of Pharaoh? Was God even listening to their cries? Did God care about the injustice? And what we read is that God was present, He was watching, He does care. Let me draw your attention to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, just as a summary statement of this truth. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There's no question about the fact that God was aware or that He was present. But He's an invisible God. And what He does now is He graces His people with a visible sign of His presence. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, was a visible, adaptable, and continual sign for the people. And it was a sign to let them know that He was near, that He was present, and that He was among them. Now, can you imagine? Have you ever wondered what it might be like to have a cloud, to hover over the man that God wanted you to marry? Wouldn't that just make it easier for you? Right? There's a cloud. There it is. Oh, it's raining on that guy. That must mean don't choose him, right? That would be incredible. Or maybe a cloud to to guide you to that perfect job that satisfies the desires of your heart. That would just make things clearer, wouldn't it? Or can you imagine having a pillar of fire that gives light to you during the night? It would sure make driving easier. Um, I could play golf in the middle of the night. I would enjoy that. We would definitely feel much safer when we went camping in the wilderness. See, it's the darkness, it's in the darkness that we fear the most. But friends, the truth is that in the new covenant, after Christ's earthly ministry and ascension, we now have something, we now have someone better than the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. See, on some level, you and I think it'd be great to have those things because we would make connections much faster, at least we think, in theory. But now we have the Holy Spirit. See, friends, now hear this and catch this. 
This is really important for us to understand. God isn't outside of us guiding us. He is now inside us, indwelling us, and He guides us from there. What we see here is the presence of God comforting, guiding His children from the outside. But today we're blessed. We're blessed by the presence of God comforting and guiding us from the inside. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. See, Paul puts it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, Christ, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, indwells all individual people who are born again. It's not just kind of a general, he, he indwells the church. No, he indwells each individual believer. He's not now limited to a tabernacle or a, or a temple, but he now lives in us. The Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among his people, but as Jesus was leaving, he says, I'm sending you another helper, another comforter, and that comforter is the Holy Spirit. He delivers, He leads, He stays with us. I want to turn your Bibles to the book of John in chapter 16. And I'm going to read just a, a number of verses there, but I want, to, I want you to catch the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit who is present with us. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 7. Never, this is Jesus speaking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, Jesus says, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see how the Trinity is working here. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. So the truth of the matter is, God is present with us by means of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And the Holy Spirit here will guide you and he will glorify Christ. And so friends, the present impact of the Holy Spirit on God's children is that he comforts, he counsels, he convicts. He's called a helper. That's the Greek word there is paraclete. Para alongside clete, to walk. He walks alongside us as a counselor, as a comforter. And in doing that, he convicts us. But we can also see that he guides us through his breathed out word. Not only does he do that, he gives us insight to that word and to the wisdom that it contains. He groans. He knows what we want to pray, but we can't put into words. 
He guilts us by showing us our sinfulness, rightfully so. And he glorifies, that is his job, to glorify Christ. God's children, friends, have the promise of God's presence. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me, the psalmist says. So friends, it's important here that we recognize that as we move on, as we press on out of bondage in our liberty, one of the things that we can do is that we can be comforted by God's presence. So we looked at the providence of God, the promises of God, the presence of God. Now we want to focus in on this fourth issue, and that is we press on pursuing God's praise. It's an interesting text, really. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haheroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So God is saying to Moses, tell the people, turn back. Now what do you mean, turn back? We're leaving Egypt. Why would we turn back? God was leading them out of Egypt. Now he wants them to turn back into Egypt. Not only does God want them to turn back, but he also tells them to set their camp facing the sea. He wants them to be encamped by the sea like sitting ducks. See, God is setting a trap for Pharaoh. Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will say to the, of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. See, God is setting a trap here. He wants them to turn back. He wants them to camp facing the sea so that it will draw Pharaoh's attention. He will look out and he will regret his decision to go and he will pounce on the opportunity to descend on Israel. Again, notice what it says in verse 3. Pharaoh will look at where the Israelites are and think to himself, they're just wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. In other words... They have no clue what they're doing. All this time they said, let us go out into the wilderness so that we can serve the Lord. Now they're out in the wilderness and they have no idea where to go. They've painted themselves into a vulnerable corner, he's thinking in his mind. And you can almost hear him sniggering, laughing at the ridiculous predicament these Hebrews have placed themselves in. And he's thinking, you wanted to go into the wilderness to serve your God, but you had no idea. And you can sense Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. It's resurfacing. As he takes it all in, he's thinking, if I go after them now, I can exact my revenge on them. I can crush them with my army. I can finally defeat them and stop them from doing what they want to do. But friends, God has other plans, doesn't he? God's plans are not what Pharaoh has in mind. See, God is looking to draw Pharaoh into his trap. God is looking to demonstrate to Pharaoh once again and to his armies just how strong and how powerful he actually is. And they have no idea what's coming. 
They couldn't even imagine it. They wouldn't believe it if they were warned about it, that their army was going to be swallowed up by the Red Sea. But God, the Lord Yahweh, He's he is looking for praise. He's looking for glory. Glory over Pharaoh. Glory over the army of Egypt. Let's just read verse, uh, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, it says, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. That's talking about the army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So here he is, still looking to reveal himself to the Egyptians so that they will know that he is the I Am. So do you see what God is asking us here? He's wanting us to ask the question, does it mean anything to us? Does it mean anything to me that through my trial, others will see God and his glory and give him praise. See, he wants to see that my trial, he wants me to see that my trial is an opportunity to praise him and for others to see that he is God through my trial. So we press on knowing that our journey that is filled with difficult twists and turns is a means by which God is putting himself on display through us so that he will be praised so that others will know that he is God. You see, this is how we press on. It's one of the aspects of it. We don't know what lies ahead, and it may be a difficult, it may be a trial. Our life on this earth is not just tiptoeing through the tulips. Of course, if you're tiptoeing through the tulips, you still have to tiptoe. You still have to move around. So life isn't supposed to be a life of ease simply because you now have freedom in Christ. And one of the things we press on with is this desire to pursue God being praised. Now, isn't that the struggle that we read about in just a few verses later, verse 11? This is how the children of Israel respond as the army is coming. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. See, it's so easy to want to avoid the trial that we know God is present in by looking back to what we know, even though it's bad, it seems safer. We're not willing to allow God to move us ahead. And so we'll talk about that next week. But you can see the struggle among God's people. So how do we press on out of bondage into freedom? We press on resisting, or resting, I should say, in God's providence trusting in God's promises, comforted by God's presence, and pursuing God's praise. But now as we bring things to a close, I would like for us to go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. 
The truth of the matter is I have been avoiding drawing our attention to this passage for a while because we could bring it up every time that we're speaking on the book of Exodus because there's things in here that relate specifically looking back. Hebrews 11 we know as the hall of faith. Um, It lists numerous characters from the Old Testament who acted in magnificent ways, magnificent faith, because they believed in a promise that God had given them. And we pick it up now in verse 22 of chapter 11, and you'll see this comes right from the book of Exodus. A little bit before that, um, although it's talked about here in this passage here. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he, that's Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, that's Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he, again, that's Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, by the, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So how does the New Testament interpret these things? Did you hear this in the text? The answer and encouragement or the, the, the way that the New Testament interprets this is that their bondage and slavery in Egypt is considered as the reproach of Christ. See, now what we have to understand here is that Moses in this context, in this, this story, in this, I want to say this metaphor, is a picture of Christ. He is foreshadowing Christ. He is the mediator between God and Man, he is the one that brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now, it's not Moses, but Moses is acting as that mediator. He is speaking for God to the people. He is leading them along the way. And so when Moses stands up representing God, he is experiencing the reproach of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He then is flashing forward here, He is experiencing the reproach of Christ. That's the point. And the answer and encouragement we're given is to follow their example of active faith in the promise of God. Jump down to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Just think about this. They exercised faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They did not receive the promise. The fulfillment of God's promise was still years ahead. They died exercising faith in a promise that they did not personally benefit from. 
And friends, this is the promise that we have. God has provided something better for us. Of course, that better for us is what Jesus Christ ultimately came to do. He went to a cross. He died on that cross. He hung there in shame. He, he bore our sin. He was that sacrifice once for all. And our faith in Him ushers us into this, this new relationship where there's king and kingdom, a spiritual king and a spiritual kingdom, so to speak. But listen to what happens now in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, based on all of this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the idea there isn't people walking in a, in a stadium where, where as you're walking through, all these witnesses are there. This is a reference to chapter 11, this example, all these examples of people. They are witnesses. Their testimony about exercising faith in God's promises, right? Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So part of our responsibility now is to do all we can to rid ourselves from the entanglements of sin that still linger with us and cause us to trip and struggle as we run. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we, we lay aside that weight and that sin. We run with endurance the race, the journey, the life that God wants us to live that is before us. And third, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, this is what God is calling us to. To look back to the time of Exodus and to see the wonderful seeds of the gospel, the seeds of God's reconciliation, the seeds of, of atonement and sacrifice that all point forward to that lamb, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And just like Jesus looked forward to that cross for the perspective that he was on that cross going to pay for our sins, we, like him then, must also endure the race that God has for us and to press on for his glory. Resting in his providence, trusting in his promises, comforted by his presence, and pursuing his glory and praise. Now, friends, wherever God has placed us, whatever time we are living, whatever country we're in, whether it's the United States of America or somewhere in the Middle East or somewhere in Asia, this passage screams at us as to how we are to press on for God's glory. We've been brought out of bondage, and God is calling us to live with attitudes and mindsets that are rooted in the gospel. Now, please hear this. What our country needs today is the truth of God's gospel. This is what we need. This utopian idea that people have is only going to be satisfied through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is heaven. Now, while we're here, we do all we can, whether it's here in America or somewhere else, we do all we can to bring about what fleshes out with God's truth in that context, in that community, in that nation. We want to be a part of that. We want to move that on. 
But far more important than that is moving on with God's people, ushering people to the one who really is the solution for their problems. You see, we're not actually free until we have experienced the Exodus, until the Passover has actually satisfied uh, all the necessary requirements for our sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Will you believe in Him? Will you begin your life afresh and press on for His glory? Today, friend, see Jesus Christ in new eyes as the one who is your Savior to bring you out of bondage, to give you freedom, and to help you live your life for His glory. Lord, help us today. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in our country, and there are many. But Lord, more important than that, we thank you for the freedom that we now have because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. We were once enslaved to sin. Now we still sin, but we're no longer in bondage to it. We don't have to be in bondage to it. Lord, you've given us a way out. You've given us a way to untangle the tangle of sin through the application of your truth in our life, progressively growing in Christ-likeness. Lord, help us to be committed to that. And Lord, we're going to fall on our faces. We're going to struggle. We're going to struggle together. But Lord, help us to be a church that is nurturing one another, even as we fall, even as we struggle, to pursue Christ-likeness. And to believe the promise that these characters, these Old Testament saints, held on to and lived their lives in such a way to please you with. Help us to be a church that is committed to your truth, no matter what's going on in our society, that the, the Word of God is feeding our souls and our minds and our thinking so that we're discerning and we're acting and thinking biblically for your glory. We ask these things now in your precious holy name. Amen.